Journey Church, welcome. Uh, is our worship awesome or what? I tell you, it's hard to imagine, but when we get to heaven, it's going to be even better. Um, it's going to be something. Well, welcome. I have the honor of being able to teach, you know, the last weekend of 2018. Uh, who is glad that we're wrapping up the year? <laughs> you people happy? I'm one of those. I'm, I'm glad this year's wrapping up. Who is bummed that this year is wrapping up? A few. Well, I, I can't remember, at least in my life, a time where we got to the end of the year and I was like, man, I just want this year to go on and on. Um, and I think that's kind of built inside of us, right? Like, we need a blank slate. We all kind of want a fresh start. And, you know, that's one of the things that I want to talk about here today and when Sister how God puts these things together and uh, had an opportunity to talk and then, you know, here it is the last weekend of the year and talking about fresh starts. Uh, but it's really just the story uh, of the gospel. It's really just the good news. It's not real complicated. Um, but, you know, what I'd like to do is, is just kind of jump into a couple of stories in the Bible that uh, really talk about and display God's love and, and his forgiveness in real uh, graphic ways. But um, my wife and I were watching a movie the other night. And uh, if any of you remember the late... Uh, singer-songwriter Rich Mullins, if you remember him, uh, amazing singer-songwriter. Um, as we were watching this, and I didn't know a lot about him outside of his songs, but he really uh, wrestled with uh, this tension between his brokenness, and really our brokenness as people, uh, and the love that the Father offers all of us, and just how incredible that is. And he said something in the middle of one of his concerts, and it just, it hit me right between the eyes, but um, he said, you know, we, we put a lot of energy into wearing masks, you know, putting up these facades, especially when we come here together, um, and it's exhausting. It really is exhausting. Uh, instead of living in the freedom that God provides, uh, we end up, you know, pretending. And, uh, and we should be the people that are doing that uh, the least. So, you know, when we just talked a little bit about uh, Jesus' arrival, we just celebrated that last week. Um, and, you know, the rest of that story is that he grows into a man and dies a brutal death for all of us. You know, he came as a baby, which is amazing, but he gave himself as a sacrifice for many. And when, when that happened, you know, when they marched him up that hill, and they hung him on the cross, said he was unrecognizable as a man. That's how bad they did. In fact, most of the people didn't even make it past the whipping stage when they beat him. And when he was hanging up there, he wasn't, he wasn't thinking, man, I hope they appreciate this. I hope they try harder next year because of everything that I've done for them. No, he was thinking about how much he loved you. And not just humanity in general, right? But about you specifically. Um, you know, that's, that's the beautiful thing about the good news, is we can't clean ourselves up to come to Jesus. But when we surrender to him, that's when he cleans us up. That's the beauty of it. So as we head into a new year, the temptation, at least for me, uh, is to look backwards on 2018 at things that maybe I left undone or things I messed up, uh, are my mistakes. And, you know, Satan would love nothing more than for you to listen to those lies. And while some of those things may be true, 
They're in the past. You know, the only thing as Christians, the only thing that's productive in looking back is to remember God's goodness and his faithfulness in our lives. But Satan is called the accuser, the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. He wants to, he wants to tell you how bad you are. He wants to say, you know, what right do you have to be up there on stage? What right do you have to be praying or to try to minister to that person? You, you just messed up big time with your family last night. That's what he would like you to do. And so you've got all this condemnation. Well, there's a difference between condemnation and conviction, right? Condemnation is what Satan deals out. And that will drive you from God. That'll make you want to hide. That'll make you want to be fake. But conviction is the Holy Spirit inviting you back. Say, listen, I've forgiven you. Jesus has died for every sin you ever done, every sin you are currently doing, or every sin you're ever going to do. That's pretty amazing. That's the freedom that we should be able to live in as Jesus followers. You know, I always, re I always remember this, this acronym for grace, this God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. So I've titled this uh, The Last Word is what I've titled it. And not because it's just the final weekend uh, as far as the message goes, but it's because that's what God gets. God gets the last word. Right? He gets the last word in your circumstances. He gets the last word in your identity and who he says you are. He gets the last word in your life and even in this world. You know, Satan uh, is called the prince of this world. If you remember back uh, when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was there 40 days and then Satan comes out to tempt him and he takes him up to this mountain and he shows him all of the, of the countries and the nations, the empires of the world throughout time. And he says, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll give it all to you. Well, how could he give it if it wasn't his to give, right? And that was a temptation. And obviously Jesus, you know, knocked that one out of the park. But when Adam sinned, when Adam bombed out, the original Adam bomb, when he bombed out, he handed the title deed over to Satan. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says this, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of Christ. So I'm going to give you the premise really up front for what I want to talk about. And there's three, uh, I guess, groups of people that I kind of want to cover. Uh, this should cover all of us. First one is, you know, stubborn or bullheaded Christians. That covers a lot of us. Um, the second is, you know, people that haven't surrendered their lives to Jesus, the ones that have been blinded uh, by Satan. And then the last one are those that have turned their back on God, you know, those that may have walked away. Uh, and, you know, the interesting thing is, is that we've all found ourselves in these positions at some point in our life, different seasons of our life. And so whether you're in, you know, the stubborn phase or the unbelieving stage or in the prodigal stage, God gets the last word. Amen? That's good. That's comforting to me. So the first story uh, that I wanted to, to dig into is the book of Jonah. Everybody remember Jonah? We all learned about that one in Sunday school. Um, the, the first original fish story. I think this is how it started. Jonah told everybody that he caught the fish instead of the fish catching him. That's how it started. But uh, we all learned about this, and I think 
you know, in this story, a lot of times as it gets related, the fish, you know, or the whale, whatever you want to call it, uh, gets a lot of attention, right? But it's not about a fish. And the story is not even about Jonah. The story is about God's compassion and his forgiveness that he offers to everyone. And specifically, even in this story, it's the Gentiles, the people that weren't Jews. So, um, Jonah was a prophet. Um, I was, if you grew up with Veggie Tales, um, Jonah was a prophet. Good luck getting that song out of your head. Um, sorry about that. But Jonah was a prophet. God spoke to him, and then he would take those words out and tell everybody what God was saying. That's a pretty cool gig. How many people wish that God would speak to you like that? Nobody. Man. Okay. Okay. Um, I wish he spoke that way to me. And I think Jonah was pretty happy about it, too, until one day... God said something that he didn't like. And God told him, listen, there's this city, Nineveh, and its wickedness has come up before me, and I need you to go preach against it. And so he tells Jonah that, and Jonah splits. He has the opposite direction. Now, have you ever, like, read something, or you heard something on the radio, or you're reading something in the Bible, and you just felt like God put something in your head or on your heart, and you thought, nah. That can't be God, you know? He wouldn't ask me to do that. Uh, but I think he does that sometimes because it rubs against, you know, our flesh. Um, and, and that's what he does sometimes just to kind of stir us up. And that's what he does here. And, and Jonah splits. Now, Nineveh, just to kind of catch the scene, if you will, Nineveh is this huge city in this empire called Assyria. And the uh, it's, it's really modern-day Iraq is where it's located. But... These people were known for their brutality. I mean, they were a murderous bunch. They, I'm going to get into all the gory details, but you can look it up yourself. But uh, they had just invented new ways to torture people, and they were famous for the things that they did for the people that they conquered. And uh, God tells him to go preach to them. So he runs from God. How ridiculous is this? He runs from the, from the presence of God, or he tries to, and he's a prophet. Now, we do some pretty ridiculous things, don't we, when, when we're trying to hide from God? You know, we, we stop reading our Bibles. You know, we stop doing devotions. Maybe we can't listen to Caleb today. You know, I can't. I don't like that. Uh, maybe we stop coming to church, even. We do some crazy things. He tries to escape the presence of God. But God uses them anyway. Uh, God uses lots of people that you wouldn't expect. You know, when we get to heaven... There's going to be some people there that we didn't expect. And there might be an absence of people that we thought for sure were going to be there. Uh, because he will reach and use whoever he wants. I remember um, the story when I was sitting in church one day. And this is not to my credit. But I was sitting in church when I turned around and we were doing the, you know, hey, greet somebody. And I saw a guy that I went to high school with. Rough character. And the first thought that came into my head was, what is that guy doing in church? Not, not excitement that he was there, but confusion. Now, I did get excited, and we did get reconnected, and that was awesome. But um, I did not expect him to be there. So Jonah goes down, it says, Jonah goes down to Joppa because he's going to catch a ship to go to Tarsus. with about as far away from Nineveh as he can get. He goes down to Joppa and says he paid the fare. John, Jonah paid the fare because there's always a price to pay when we're disobedient, right? There's always a price to pay. Um, 
And then he goes down into the boat. So he goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. And then you know the story. Later on, he goes down into the sea. So as we continue in our disobedience, eventually we're going to find ourselves in over our heads. There's a quote that I heard a couple times growing up. And uh, I'll share it with you. My, uh, my mom would be proud, and I don't think she's here. But um, let's go ahead and put that up here. And basically, it's sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it's going to cost you more than you want to pay. Right? That's what sin will do. And I think that's true here in Jonah's case. But God's not done with Jonah yet. As you know, there's a huge storm. So he gets on the boat. Huge storm. A supernatural storm because it says that the sailors start freaking out. Now, these are sailors. They've been through all kinds of storms before. What's the deal? Well, it's a supernatural storm. They know something's going on beyond just the weather. And where do they find Jonah? He's sleeping in the boat, right? He's pretending like the whole thing's not happening. He's, uh, he's got his head in the sand. And like I said before, I think sometimes... When we get in these situations, we get in rebellion, we start pretending like things aren't that bad. And we start ignoring, again, our Bibles, the people that we know keep us uh, accountable. And they said, what are you doing sleeping, man? Get up and pray. Pray to your God, is what they said, that he will have mercy on us so that we won't perish. Do you think that Jonah felt like praying right then? I don't think so. I don't think he felt like praying. Um, and, and that's another thing that sin will do. It's going to rob us of opportunities to minister to others, right? We're not going to be able to live out this example as believers in front of other people when we're engaged in sin ourselves. So they grab Jonah. They take him upstairs. They're trying to figure out what the deal is. They're trying to save themselves, and they start talking to him. They start throwing dice to see who's the problem here. And guess who comes up with the short straw? Jonah does. And they say, who are you? What's your occupation? Where are you from? And he said, listen, I serve the God who made the heavens and the earth and the oceans, and I'm running from him. And I could just see them, like, staring at him with their jaws, like, wide open. And, like, these guys had a soft spot or something because they go back to try to save the ship, save themselves, after he told them, listen, chuck me in the ocean and all this stuff will stop. But they still try to save him and save themselves. And, you know, we can't save people in and of ourselves. Not with our talents, not with our special abilities. It's only God and the Holy Spirit that brings people to repentance. Right? So they try to do this. And so eventually it doesn't work. Jonah says, throw me overboard, which sounds really noble at the time. It's not. He's being really selfish. Um, and they throw him over. And we usually skip to the part about the fish. Right? But listen to what happened. It says that when they threw him overboard and the storm stopped immediately, it says they feared the Lord exceedingly. And when they got back to land, they offered sacrifices and they made vows. Now, it doesn't say what those vows were, but I suspect it has something to do with honoring the true and living God. Right? So even though Jonah messed up big time, God still used it. He wasn't done with Jonah either. Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth. Speaking of not trying to save people in our own strength. Let's go ahead and put that up there. 
and this is Paul writing, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Pretty simple message, right? He wrote this after he had just made a trip to Athens. Right? He goes to Athens. This is where all of the intellectuals are. Smart people of the day, they're gathered at this place called the Oropagus, and they would sit around all day and talk about you know, ideas and theories and um, whatever the newest fad was or religion. And Paul comes there, and he gets an audience with him, and he thinks, man, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to relate to these guys. I'm going to get real intellectual. I'm going to use some reasoning and all of my wisdom because Paul was super smart. And after he got done, it says they listened to him, but only a few believed because he tried to do it in his own strength, in his own smarts. But then he goes back and he tells them, listen, I'm done with that. I've determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So a much different speech than what he gave in Athens. So now these men, uh, these sailors, have a fear of God that rested in his power. It rested in God's power. So he gets swallowed up by the whale, but the whale's not his punishment. Surely at that point he felt like, I'm done for. This is it. This is my punishment. I'm going to die. But God wasn't done with him. The fish was simply a vehicle for his salvation and for the salvation of the Ninevites. So, you know, you might hear from time to time, even amongst people who claim to be Christians, that not all the stories in the Bible are real. You know? I mean, a flood that covered the whole earth. You know? I mean, really? A million people walked across the Red Sea on dry land. Or a guy lived inside a whale for three days. That's just not possible. Um, you'll hear people. I had a college professor who taught theology who tried to pass that off on some of us. So, um, But interesting because Jesus addresses this with some, with some religious people of his day. And they're peppering him with questions. They're saying, listen, if you're the Messiah, if you're who you say you are, give us some kind of sign. Perform a miracle. Do something. And this is what he says. Jesus is addressing him. He says, but he answered them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, for, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So if somebody doesn't believe that that story's real, just ask them if they believe in Jesus. Okay, so three days later, the fish gets the urge to regurge, and he barfs Jonah up all over the seashore, right? He's there, and God tells him, basically, now are you going to go do what I told you to do the first time? And so he makes a beeline for Nineveh to go deliver the message. This was the message that he delivered. This was it, not complicated. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. He walks into the city and that's what he starts talking about. Now, it says that Nineveh was a great city. It said it took three days 
to walk from one side of the city all the way to the other. So for three days, he just walks, and he does the bare minimum, by the way. He just walks through the city and yells, you know, 40 days, and the city's going to be overthrown. He doesn't ask to see the king. He doesn't ask to see the city leaders so that he can talk to them. No message of hope, just cities coming down. But the word reaches the king, reaches the king that there is a prophet walking around saying that the city's going to be destroyed. And it's interesting because the king hears and he responds. It says that the king stepped down off of his throne, removed his kingly garments, put on sackcloth, burlap, and ashes, and sat down. Now, that's interesting. For the guy who's leading a murderous, you know, terrible, brutal nation to do that, he gets convicted, right? That's always the first step in repentance, is to step down in humility. Each one of us, we all have a little, a little throne inside of our hearts, and we get to decide who sits there, right? Are we sitting there? We're in charge of our lives, you know, nobody tell me what to do. I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul type of mentality. Or are we gonna step down in humility and let Jesus take his place? That's what he asked us to do, let him lead. So the king, the king does this, he steps down and he declares a fast. He says, listen, because there's no message of hope. The king says, listen, we're doing a fast. Everybody, nobody eats anything, nobody drinks anything, even the animals. And we're gonna cry out to this God and maybe, maybe he'll relent. And so they do, they do that. So the power of a transformed life, repentance, right? If somebody's truly repentant, their life is gonna be transformed. That's the power of God. That's what does it. People notice a transformed life. Now, this is really cool. I kind of get into these things, a little bit teaching, but follow me. Okay. Jonah's name, Jonah's name means dove, right? If my name, if my name meant dove, I, I mean, it's not super masculine, right? But that's what his name means, dove. And then it's very specific. It tells us his dad's name. His dad's name, he was son of Amittai. Now, Amittai means my truth, okay? Interesting. So the dove in the scriptures is always representative of the Holy Spirit, always. And it says, if you remember, when Jesus went to be baptized and his cousin, John the Baptist, baptizes him in the Jordan, brings him up and said, when he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. So here you've got my truth, his dad, and you've got a dove coming out from him and God sends him to reveal his truth to the Ninevite people. I just think that's super cool. It's not a coincidence. Right? This is, what, this is what Jesus says about this. Um, we can put this up here. Um, Jesus in John 16, he's talking to his disciples and he's telling them about how he is going back to the Father, but not to worry because he is sending the Holy Spirit. He says, and when he comes, that's the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, Jonah's name means dove, Holy Spirit. He's convicting them regarding sin. 
He's trying to lead them into truth and declare to them the things that are coming, right? I just think that's really cool. Okay, um, so now, now Jonah reveals the reason why he didn't want to go, right? We talked about how they have no love for the Jews. They diced him up, and he should have been scared to go there. Like, he's going to go and deliver this message of judgment, um, but he's Jew. So he would have thought that he would have split because he was afraid for his life. But that's not the reason why he didn't go. He tells us here in this next verse why he didn't go. He's talking to God here. He gets ticked because the people repent. They do repent. God sees it. And then he decides, okay, they repented. I'm going to relent. And Jonah was furious. And he lost his temper. And he yelled at God. He says, God, I knew it. When I was back at home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarsus. I knew that you were sheer grace and mercy. Not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. He gets ticked that God is going to forgive him. But he is ready at the drop of a hat to forgive us. He has mercy on us. All we have to do is respond, right? The Ninevites responded, God forgives. Jonah, poor Jonah, <laughs> he's been through a lot. And now he's yelling at God. It's incredible. But do we ever see people that way? Uh, I know I mentioned a friend that I saw, and I was just confused because for a moment I was surprised. But do we feel like people are beyond grace? You know, we, we hear these stories, and the world hears stories of people that have forgiven murderers and, and people that have done terrible things, and it's just not natural. That's because it's supernatural. Right? That kind of forgiveness only comes through, through God and Jesus. Now, the book of Jonah is the only book in the Bible that ends with a question. Because God gets the last word. And God's talking to Jonah and he says, basically, listen, do you have the right to be angry? Because I choose to forgive people that don't deserve it? And I think it ends in a question because we're supposed to think about that. We're supposed to ponder should we be angry that God is so generous that this person got a promotion or that so-and-so, you know, got a new car or, you know, won the lottery, whatever it is, you know, should we be angry? Are we justified? Because we ask the question a lot of times, why do bad things happen to good people? When really the question should be, why do good things happen to bad people? Because the scriptures say there are no good people. <laughs> We're all bad people. So the fact that we have anything coming our way in the, in the form of blessings. It's just God's grace. In Luke 15, Jesus is telling the parable of the lost sheep. And it says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. 99 people that are righteous doing what they're you know, supposed to be doing. Lives surrendered to God. Awesome. That's great. But when one sinner turns to Jesus, they throw a party in heaven. They throw a party. That's pretty cool. All right. That's the story of Jonah. That covers the bullheaded Christians, um, some of us who are stubborn. And then uh, those that have had their eyes blinded that the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to. Right? And the third one is going to be about those who have... Uh, maybe turn their back on God. And I love this story because it's about a backsliding tax collector that Jesus asked to be one of his disciples. And we'll put this verse up here. This is Jesus 
Oh, I missed that one. See, you guys are kind of like the first child of, of services. <laughs> you know, with your first child, you try to do everything perfect, you know, and you're really careful. And then you get everything right with the second one, right? And then by the third one, they're chewing on the carpet, and you're like, whatever, I don't care. Let's just do this. Um, okay. <laughs> All right. So the second one's about a tax collector. Now, Matthew, if you were going to choose some people to help you turn the world upside down, right, and usher in God's kingdom, I'd probably start with some well-known names you know, some dynamic personalities that at the very least maybe go to some of the top seminaries, get some, you know, uh, real evangelists. But God chooses a ragtag group of men that most people wouldn't even give a second thought to, much less hire for the job of spreading the gospel. Here we go. Passing along, Jesus went to a man at his work collecting taxes, and his name was Matthew. Jesus said, come along with me. Matthew stood up and followed him. Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined him. Those are sinners. And when the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and they lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? So this is always the case, Jesus uh, getting in trouble with the religious leaders because uh, he is reaching out to these sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, all of them. And I'm convinced, you know, if Jesus was here today, I don't know how many churches he would be in. I just don't. You know, he would go to the temple, uh, but he spent most of his time with the sinners and, you know, the underbelly of society trying to reach these people that nobody else wanted to talk to. Um, and, and we have another example of that here with Matthew. Now, tax collectors. They had no love for the tax collectors back then. And we still don't today. I just wrote out my check for property taxes and I don't have much love for the IRS right now. Um, and I probably won't for a little while, but that's not a sermon. Um, but <laughs> this is how it worked back then. This is how it worked. The Romans who ruled pretty much the whole world back then recruited Jewish men to go collect the taxes in their region. So as if it wasn't bad enough that these people had to pay taxes, they're having to pay taxes to people who are traitors. Traitors to their country, right? They've turned their backs on their country, they've turned their backs on you know, their tribes, their callings, um, on God, basically, for profit, for money. And what they would do is they'd say, listen, this is the amount of taxes you have to raise in your region. Um, that's the minimum. And how did, they, how did they get paid? Well, anything they collected over and above that, they got to keep. So they extorted money out of them. They cheated them so that they could make money on top of that. And most of the tax collectors were known as really wealthy individuals. So you can understand how people hated them so much. Now, Matthew was one of those where he had walked away from his calling, his people, his God. In Luke and in Mark, in their Gospels, it tells us that his, his name was Levi. So he has two names. And that's not, that's not unusual back then for people to have two names. It's been um, kind of thought that maybe Jesus changed his name in the same way that he changed Simon's name to Peter. 
you know, um, Simon's name meant shifting sand. And he changed it to Peter, which meant rock. And a Levi meant, you know, joined with God, but he wasn't joined with God anymore. He had chosen a different path. So Matthew meant gift of God. And he certainly was a gift, and his gospel was a gift uh, to all of us as believers. But here's the deal with that. It is highly probable that he was a Levite, that Levi was a Levite, right, of the tribe of Levi. Now, they were the priests for the entire nation. That was their job. This all started back with Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron, brothers, Levites, Aaron became the first high priest of the nation of Israel. Anything that had to do with the temple or sacrifices or serving, any of that stuff, had to be done by a Levite. And they didn't even get an inheritance when they came into the promised land. God said, I am their inheritance. No land. They're supposed to be wrapped up in serving me. But instead of that, he's wrapped up in himself in oppressing his own people. So he's kind of turned his back on that. But one day, one day, this traveling rabbi comes walking by and invites him back into the ministry. It's just amazing to me. He's walked away from what he's supposed to be doing. He knows what he's supposed to be doing. May have been cut off from his family at this point for choosing this profession. And Jesus invites him back in to the ministry and he responds I think it's significant that Jesus sought him out. He wasn't looking for the Messiah. He wasn't looking for Jesus. He was sitting at his booth collecting taxes, and Jesus approaches him. You know, it says that Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. You know, sometimes you hear people say, I found God. Well, God really found you. He chose you. So um, there is there's a painting that was done, put it up here. There's a painting that was done by a guy named William Hunt. And he did this painting, it's called The Light of the World. And it's a picture of Jesus and he's standing at the door and this is uh, just depicting Revelations chapter three where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and have dinner with him. And so this is a depiction of that. And as it was being critiqued, the people were asking questions, and he was uh, explaining all the symbolism, because there's a lot in here, but I'm not an artsy person, so I'm not going to go through all that. But one of the things that people says is that there's no handle on the outside of the door. There's no doorknob. And he said that's because it can only be opened from the inside. Jesus is a perfect gentleman. He will not kick down the door. He's not going to force himself on anyone. He stands at the door and knocks, and we have to respond. And Matthew responded. So, you guys think I'm going to, um, you know, he stands at the door and he knocks, waiting for us to respond. In Luke's gospel, it tells us, Matthew's pretty humble about it, but in Luke's gospel, it says that Matthew threw a huge party, and he invites a bunch of his tax collector friends. Tax collector and sinner are often used in the same sentence. And so you've got this big group of sinners that he invites over for this huge meal because Jesus and his disciples have come over. And that's just, that's amazing to me. God had invited him back into the fold and he goes and gets a bunch of people like himself so maybe they can be invited back into the fold. So he's trying to bring them back as well. And Matthew, the whole point in his gospel is to present Jesus as king. 
he writes, all of the Gospels are written to different groups of people. His is written specifically to the Jews. So after all these years of turning his back on God, oppressing his brothers, he devotes his entire message to proving that Jesus is the Messiah. It is called the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There are lots of references to the Old Testament that people would have known. It makes sense if he was in the tribe of Levi, he would have grown up knowing all of these things. And so he's very qualified to write about them. He mentions 12 prophecies specifically that Jesus fulfilled. And it says this was done to fulfill the prophecy that the prophet said well, at least 12 times in the book. And Jesus filled hundreds. He fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. But there were some mathematicians, and they sat down and did a probability thing, and I love this stuff. Um, and they did a probability study on what would it be, what would that number look like, what are the chances that one man would accidentally fulfill just eight, just eight of them. For one person to accidentally fulfill just eight of the prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros behind it. Pretty slim odds. Now, one, in, one to the 15th power, one in 10 to the 15th power is called a quadrillion. I hadn't even heard of that number before. This is one to the 17th. Jesus addresses the leaders after this, and they're you know, giving his followers a hard time. And he overhears them talking, and he says, listen. He said, I didn't come for the healthy people. Healthy people don't need a doctor. It's the sick people that do. He said, I didn't come to call righteous people. I didn't come to schmooze Christians. I came to schmooze. I came to spend time with and heal up those who need repentance. And he said this. He said, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He said, go learn it. Go learn what that means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. We can move past all of our failings, all of our mistakes, all of our backsliding because of what Jesus has done. You know, Jesus was uh, talking to people. He was telling a parable. Um, it's only here in Matthew. And it's about the kingdom of heaven and uh, telling what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he takes his disciples into the house and he starts explaining to them a little bit more. And... Uh, that up there, but it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, and when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. And I used to hear this and read this when I was younger, and uh, I heard sermons on it, and I used to think that, you know, I was the traveler, and Jesus was the treasure in the field, and, you know, when we found him, we were supposed to just chase him with everything we had, and um, you know, just get rid of everything else in our life. And, and while it's true, um, it's, it's not accurate for what this is talking about. The field is, is the earth, and Jesus is the one. I didn't sell everything to buy God. Jesus gave everything to buy us back, which means you're the treasure. We're the treasure. We're the pearl of great price. And he emptied himself when he came to earth as a man. That's amazing to me. Did you know that Jesus calls you friend? You know, when God started his covenant with Abraham, 
and he told him that he was going to make him a great nation and through him all of the people of the earth would be blessed. It says that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was right with God and he was called a friend of God. You know who else Jesus called friend? Judas. When Judas came to the garden to betray Jesus, he's standing there and he goes up and he kisses him on his cheek because that was the symbol that he was telling people that's the guy that you're supposed to arrest. And Jesus says, friend, why have you come? And I don't think he was being sarcastic. He was really calling him friend because he loved him. And then in Zechariah 13, he's writing about the return of Jesus. And he says that when he comes back and the Jewish people see him, they'll, they'll see his pierced hands and his feet and his scars. And they'll say, where did you get those wounds? And his response will be that I got these wounds in the house of my friends. He calls you friends simply because he loves you. We can move past our mistakes and the things that happened this past year. We can move into 2019, living in the anticipation of what he's doing and what he's calling us into. All we have to do is respond. So if I just want to close in a prayer. If, if you're here and you haven't surrendered your life to God or you were here and you've just walked away from God but you found yourself here tonight you could just repeat after me and you know we've said this before but I'll supply the words but you have to make it your own you have to make it yours you give the meaning so with every head bowed and every eye closed you just repeat after me Father God thank you for your great love mercy toward me. I confess that I'm a sinner in need of your forgiveness and grace. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he came to earth to wash away my sin. Thank you that in spite of my sin and my failings, you still call me friend. I step down off of the throne of my heart and I humbly invite you to be the Lord over my life. In 1 Peter, chapter 5, Peter's writing and he says this. He says, keep a cool head and stay alert. The devil is poised to pounce and would love nothing better than to catch you napping. Keep your guard up. You're not the only ones plunged into these hard times. It's the same with Christians all over the world. So keep a firm grip on your faith. The suffering won't last forever. It won't be long before this generous God who has great plans for us in Christ, eternal and glorious plans they are will have you put together and back on your feet for good. He gets the last word. Yes, he does. Amen.